Well, this evening we are ending our series, finishing our series in the book of Joel. So turn with me, if you would, to Joel chapter 3, and we'll look at verses 16 through 21 this evening. I recognize it has been several weeks since we were in this short prophetic book, um, but we will begin reading for that case in verse 9. So Joel chapter 3, starting in verse 9 down through verse 21. Joel chapter 3, and starting in verse 9. Proclaim this among the nations. Consecrate for war. Stir up the mighty men. Let all the men of war draw near. Let them come up. Beat your plowshares into swords, and your pruning hooks into spears. Let the weak say, I am a warrior. Hasten and come, all you surrounding nations, and gather yourselves there. Bring down your warriors, O Lord. Let the nations stir themselves up and come up to the valley of Jehoshaphat. For there I will sit to judge all the surrounding nations. Put in the sickle, for the harvest is ripe. Go in, tread, for the winepress is full. The vats overflow, for their evil is great. Multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision. For the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. The sun and moon are darkened, and the stars withdraw their shining. The Lord roars from Zion and utters his voice from Jerusalem, and the heavens and the earth quake. But the Lord is a refuge to his people, a stronghold to the people of Israel. So shall you know that I am the Lord your God, who dwells in Zion, my holy mountain. And Jerusalem shall be holy, and strangers shall never again pass through it. And in that day the mountains shall drip sweet wine, and the hills shall flow with milk. And all the stream beds of Judah shall flow with water. And a fountain shall come forth from the house of the Lord and water the valley of Shittim. Egypt shall become a desolation and Edom a desolate wilderness for the violence done to the people of Judah because they have shed innocent blood in their land. But Judah shall be inhabited forever and Jerusalem to all generations. I will avenge their blood, blood I have not avenged, for the Lord dwells in Zion. This is the reading of God's holy word. May he bless it to us. Let's go to him one more time this evening in a time of prayer. Father, as we come to the end of this book of Joel that we know your spirit inspired all these thousands of years ago, we recognize that there are many things here that are perhaps foreign to our ears. We ask that your spirit would illumine us to understand these things, to see what it is that you told these people and what you are still telling us through this word. We thank you, Lord, for it. We ask that we would see more of the glories of you, the glories of the gospel, the glories of Jesus Christ in it. For it's in his name that we pray. Amen. Well, as we come to Joel, and it's been several weeks since we were here, perhaps it's good for us to just take a step back and review a little bit where we've been. I know Joel is not perhaps the most uh, common book that we read. It's maybe not the most well-known book in the church today for a number of different reasons. Oftentimes the minor prophets are not. But as we come to Joel, we saw at the beginning that Joel is coming to the people of Judah at a time that we're not entirely sure about. We don't know exactly when it was that he came. We don't know exactly many of the details surrounding it. We don't know much about Joel himself, the prophet. We know he's been called as a prophet of God. He's been called as God's mouthpiece to come to God's people and to bring them his message. And he's coming in a time of devastation. That God has brought in an army, as it were, of locusts, a swarm unlike anyone, anything that these people had seen and anything that their elders had seen in their days either. And these locusts had come in and they'd swarmed over all the land and there are different uh, waves that come in wave after wave after wave and they're eating even the bark off the tree and in the midst of this also there's a drought. 
And so even the seeds that were protected from the locusts are drawing out as a result of the lack of water. Perhaps we can be identifying with that in this summer. It's hot, it's dry, it's dusty. The locusts have eaten everything. There's not much green left, if anything. And God's people are beginning to wonder why, as you would. Well, Joel comes along and reminds them not only of the fact that this has happened, but he gives them a divine interpretation on these events. That God himself has brought this as a way to chastise his people who had seemed to forget God, to just go through the motions of worship, to go through the motions of their lives without really thinking of the fact that God is the one who provided for them in the first place. And so the beginning of Joel is a word, often a uh, source of words of judgment and condemnation and wrath. But then you get about halfway through Joel and the words become quite gracious. As is often the case in the prophets, not only are the prophets bringing words of bad news to the people, but they're also bringing words of good news, words we could say even of the gospel beforehand. And so God will bring blessing. The day of the Lord is coming, and the locust invasion was always pointing ahead towards it. But God will bring blessing to his people. He will come in war. He will come as a divine warrior. And ultimately, his people will be rescued in that day. And so as we come now to Joel three sixteen through 21, we see how this prophecy of Joel ends. It started out in a very uh, in-your-face way as Joel just kind of comes along and says, this is what has happened and this is what God is doing through it. And it ends perhaps in a surprising way. It began with this notion of judgment and ends with comfort. Why? Because the Lord is gracious, because Yahweh is going to bring mercy to his people. And we can take comfort in that even today. So we'll see three headings, each of them in turn. First of all, at verse 16, we see a word of comfort. The Lord roars from Zion and utters his voice from Jerusalem, and the heavens and the earthquake, but the Lord is a refuge to his people, a stronghold to the people of Israel. And so in these verses that we read that are not part of our text this evening, we saw that this idea, this valley of Jehoshaphat, wherever it was, we're not entirely sure where this was, was seen as basically this cosmic courtroom. That God is going to bring all the peoples of the earth, all these enemies of his and of his people, and bring them here and enter into judgment with them. He's going to declare them guilty, as it were. But here we have the same Lord in the same place where he was, and this judge is actually now a refuge. That idea of the Lord roaring from Zion might be strange to our ears. It may not be one of those verses that we hear very often or that we memorize or that we have in our heads, in our minds. But this is meant to be a great comfort to God's people. That God's presence here is a presence of judgment, certainly, as he's coming on the last day, on the day of the Lord. But that judgment can be a day of comfort and hope for his people. It's the same kind of thing that we read about in Isaiah 25, 4. For you have been a stronghold to the poor, a stronghold to the needy in his distress, a shelter from the storm and a shade from the heat. That imagery is quite striking, isn't it? This is what our God is to those who are in need of him, who trust in him, who call out upon his name. That he is there for the poor, for the needy, for those who are in distress, for those who need shelter from storms and shelter from heat. That the same God, the same judge who comes and causes the earth to shake and the heavens to quake is the one in whom we trust. He roars from Zion and this is a great message of comfort to his people. Because remember, as we've seen in Joel again and again from the beginning, God can be present in two different ways. He can be present in judgment which is the worst news imaginable. Or he can be present in blessing and in grace, which is the good news. 
What we see here is the same God on the same day in the same place coming and people experiencing his presence in different ways. And how do we know that God roars from Zion here in verse 16? Well, because he judges his enemies and he protects his own. He comes in condemnation and wrath against those who would rebel against him, who would spill the blood of his people, but he comes as a refuge and as a shelter for those who trust in his name. For those who, using the words of Isaiah, are poor and needy, who are weak, who are in distress, who need the shelter from storm and from heat. And the same message brings terror and comfort. And why the difference? Well, it depends on what your relationship to Yahweh is. In fact, if we were to look at one of the main themes of Joel as a whole, this entire prophetic book, that's really one of the things that it boils down to. Who are you in relation to Yahweh? Are you one of his enemies who are openly his enemies, who are against him, who are plotting against him and his people? Are you perhaps one of his enemies who are going through the motions but don't really believe in him, don't really trust in him? Or are you one who are trusting in his promises to his people? Trusting in his covenant promises, his covenant goodness, and believing that even through the bad times that he will redeem, that he will restore, that he will comfort, that he will bring wonderful blessings. That's how Joel ends his prophecy. That everyone is gathered. Everyone is brought really to the same place. But there are two options for those who are brought. We can see this even more clearly now. All these thousands of years later, even though Joel's audience would have had a very good vision, a very good picture of what these things would have meant to them in their own time, we can see even more clearly who God is now. He's revealed himself to us in a great way, especially in Christ. As we consider this fact of the day of the Lord that is coming and God coming in judgment and the courtroom being set up, we can see that there's a very clear way of determining who is judged and who is in the refuge. It's those who are outside of Christ and those who are in Christ. That those who have Christ as Savior can be confident. That those who have Christ as Savior can know that we have a refuge on the last day. That no matter what happens in between now and then, no matter what happens on that day, that we believe in him, that we trust in him, and therefore the judge has become our very refuge. And the creator is our refuge. We see here God's voice is extremely powerful. It's this picture of he utters his voice from Jerusalem and the heavens and the earthquake. Now, boys and girls, I don't know if you've ever been in an earthquake. I lived in California for years and I got to experience some of them. And I have to tell you, the ones I experienced were kind of sad. By the time I figured out what they were, they were over. Those kind of earthquakes. Not the terrifying earthquakes that caused death and destruction and mayhem everywhere. But imagine, if you can, that you are in the midst of an earthquake and everything is shaking and there's buildings falling and all these terrible things are happening and there's nowhere to run or hide. And oh, by the way, the heavens are quaking too. Where on earth do you go? What do you do? You can't run to the basement. You can't run outside. Everything, it seems, is coming down around you. That's the picture we have when God utters his voice, when he roars from Zion. His voice is supremely powerful. It's the same kind of thing we see in Psalm 29, where we see the voice of the Lord is over the waters. The God of glory thunders. The Lord over many waters. The voice of the Lord is powerful. The voice of the Lord is full of majesty. The voice of the Lord breaks the cedars. The Lord breaks the cedars of Lebanon. And that psalm is getting across this idea of God's voice as the one who brings the storm. His voice is the thunder in the storm. 
If you've ever been involved in a very serious thunderstorm, one of those, like I knew growing up in Nebraska, where the sky turns green and the temperature drops about 30 degrees in half an hour, and the clouds roll in and you know you're in for it. Every once in a while there's a peal of thunder that is so loud, that is so powerful, that it goes deep within you. You can just about feel it reverberating in your ribs and in your chest. That's a picture of the voice of the Lord, and the voice of the Lord is even more powerful. So the earth and the heavens quake, because all of creation is terrified of this day. All of creation knows that the creator has come in judgment, and yet this one who makes the heavens and the earth quake is a refuge for his people. Brothers and sisters, he causes us to be stable even in the midst of this. And there is no other refuge. This is a cosmic judgment. Everyone is going to be involved in this. There is no escape. There is no putting anything off at this point. It's not as if he's coming in judgment on one nation and the others will have to wait their turn. He's coming in final judgment. He's coming on his day over all creation. There's nowhere to run or to hide. When I was younger, I would like to play hide-and-seek in the dark with my sibling and my friends and my cousins, which is a really good way of getting hurt. But if you were in an unknown basement, there were always places to hide. You may not find them, but you knew that one of your friends, at least, was going to be hidden for at least an hour. Because you could run, you could hide, you could avoid the one who is seeking. That's not what this day is going to be. There's no running from this, there's no hiding from this, there's no avoiding this, there's no chance that you will be overlooked This is a day that comes for all, and there is no other refuge than the one himself who is seeking, the one himself who is coming in judgment. And so God is our refuge. But even as we heard this morning, that this can be made even more personal, let's make it a little more personal tonight. If you're trusting in Christ as your Savior, and you recognize, yes, that this day is coming, and we don't know when it's going to come, we don't know when it's going to happen, but we know that the day of the Lord is coming, even as a thief in the night. And you know that one day God will come in judgment over all creation. That there will be a final cataclysmic last day of this world. You know the heavens and the earth will quake, but you're trusting in Christ. You can know that God is your refuge. Not just a refuge, but your refuge. Joel is bringing comfort to God's people here. In the midst of all this terror and destruction, imagine them looking around and seeing all that the locusts have left, which is not very much, yet hearing that God is their refuge. He is the one who keeps them stable in the day of trouble. He is the one, even though he is the judge, who will keep them from coming into judgment. We see this is our first heading. This is the God who is really the judge and the refuge. This is the word of comfort that Joel brings. But he also brings Secondly, a word of glory. Notice especially in verses 17 and 18, these words. So you shall know that I am the Lord your God, who dwells in Zion, my holy mountain, and Jerusalem shall be holy, and strangers shall never again pass through it. And in that day the mountain shall drip sweet wine, and the hills shall flow with milk, and all the stream beds of Judah shall flow with water, and a fountain shall come forth from the house of the Lord, and water the valley of Shittim. And so God is bringing a word of comfort and a word of glory to his people, a word of what the future holds, blessings almost unimaginable, especially in the context of what God's people have gone through here in the midst of this locust invasion and this drought. 
We see that this ending section of Joel, even as much of the rest of the prophecy, is full of covenantal terms. That Lord, capital L-O-R-D, Yahweh, that name is used. He's identified as your God and we are identified as his people. That Zion is identified as a place where he dwells. All these things have a great history. And the original audience would have known these things backwards and forwards. Whether they believed it or not is a different question. But they would know that what Joel was doing here, that what the Holy Spirit was doing as he moved Joel's mouth, was he was bringing to remembrance all these promises that God had made. All these promises that God had made to be there for his people, to be their God, that they would be his people. That he would bring them glory, that he would bring them blessing. And in verse 17, that idea of your God is far more important than perhaps we may think at a first reading. Imagine with me that you are someone in the, in the area of Judah at this time. And you honestly do not know where your next meal is coming from. It's difficult for us to imagine, isn't it? We know we can go to the grocery store and we can find 40 different types of bread. Sometimes it's almost intimidating even making that choice. Here we have a catastrophic area, a catastrophic time, where not only is this harvest gone, but next harvest may be gone too. The wine has been cut off. Even the religious services of God have been cut off because the normal offerings and sacrifices that they make are no longer there. Even the water is gone because there's a drought. And so you're left wondering, is this the end? Is this it? Has God brought us this far in our history as a nation only to leave us here and to watch us as we slowly die of thirst and hunger, as we slowly starve our way out of the land? And then comes this message from a prophet named Joel talking about the Lord your God. This personal idea. That this is not just the God of gods and the king of kings, even though he is. This is not just the one who is in control of all creation, no matter what your pagan neighbors may think. But this is your God. This is the God who will bring blessing to you. Brothers and sisters, we can recognize that this evening. We're not in the same position that they were, certainly, at least physically. We haven't had a swarm of locusts come through and eat everything and even eat, you know, the doors, the wood doors and the tables in our homes as sometimes locusts do. We don't have at least as severe a drought as they did. We have ways to get water. We aren't wondering where our meals are going to come from for the next two cycles. But we know we're dependent. We know that sometimes things seem to be falling down around us. That things seem to be rolling out of control. But we can know that in Christ the Lord is our God. As you trust in Christ, the Lord is your God. That he has made promises to you in Christ and he will fulfill them just as surely as he fulfilled them to the people of Judah even when they couldn't see it coming. That this is the message that he is bringing to you. We see here that he is going to make Jerusalem holy, he says. It's going to be a special place. And imagine this. This prophecy begins with Jerusalem just surrounded by locusts. They're even coming in the windows. They're coming in the homes. They're everywhere you could find You can almost imagine in your mind's eye the sun being blotted out as all these insects are coming towards this capital city. But now what is the Lord going to do? He's going to take away all enemies from Jerusalem. 
He's going to take away all calamity. He's going to take away all uncleanness and defilement. That idea of strangers no longer being there means only the people of God will be left. Oftentimes in the Old Testament we read about God threatening that he will bring in other nations and come into Jerusalem and sweep it away. What he's here promising is that after that great day, after that great time in the valley of decision, that terrible day of cosmic judgment, that only the people of God will be left. That only the people of God will be in Jerusalem. That there will be no more strangers. That each and every single person there will be one of the covenant people of God. That there will be nothing defiling, nothing unholy there. And how is glory and holiness brought about? By disposing of the non-glorious and the unholy. God is promising glory to us here. He's promising that all these things that we recognize are wrong and sinful and defiling, even about ourselves, will have no place in Jerusalem. That Zion will be free and clear of all these things. And there will be abundance, even as we see in verse 18 especially, that all these things that have happened, all these things that have led to the people of God wondering where their next meal is going to come from, is going to be reversed in such a way that you can scarcely imagine. And we may miss some of this because we're not used to this language and we don't know their time and place and their climate and all these different things to see how some of these things are very strange to be said. But really what he's saying here, he's promising a re-edening, if I can invent a term. This is a re-edening and it's even better than the first Eden. This is the place that is holy and undefiled where no more will a serpent come in and defile things. No more will sin come in. This is going to be a lush, beautiful green place where everything is provided for the people of God. In verse 18, that idea of streams flowing continually, these are streams that only had water during rain. I never really understood that until I lived in California and Arizona, and now I think I get it. That there are places in the earth where you can see there once was water flowing here. There's not any water flowing here now and hasn't been for quite some time. But when the storms come in, when the monsoons come in, if they ever come in again, there's going to be water flowing through these. It's going to be lush and green in a way that we can scarcely imagine now. Israel was very similar in those days. They didn't have irrigation. They didn't have all these things that we have. They were dependent upon the rains to come. And when the rains would come, then these streams would flow, and there would be prosperity, and there would be lush green, and there would be good times. What Joel is saying is these streams, these wadis as we could call them, are going to be flowing with water continually. Maybe as we read verse 18, we need to think like farmers if we can. This is a promise of continual and forever moisture. And as most of Israel, most of Judah were farmers at that time, this is how they understood great blessing. Especially think about this as you're sitting there hungry and thirsty. Wondering if you're going to starve to death or you're going to die of thirst long before you can even have the chance to starve. God promises this. God promises that these are the blessings that he will bring. Judah will have abundance here. Judah will have all these blessings. But where does the water flow from as we read about it? And a fountain shall come forth from the house of the Lord and water the valley of Shittim. Shittim, as far as we can tell, is a valley with a lot of acacia trees that needed quite a bit of water but could sometimes live in the desert if they had enough water for them. And what we see here is this picture of the temple of God 
having a bubbling fountain that comes out and waters these streams and brings all these blessings. In other words, these blessings come from God himself. That what God is promising here is that all this abundance, all these many blessings are going to flow from me myself. It's going to be so great that wine will even grow or even come from the grapes and the vineyards on the mountains. Now, mountains are quite rocky. I probably don't need to tell you that. And the mountains in Israel were always seen as the least productive place for farms, for vineyards, for all these things. God is saying he's going to reverse this and they're going to drip with wine. It's going to be even greater than when the locusts came. That even the places that we look at as uninhabitable and unuseful, unproductive, unyielding, they're going to be bringing forth blessings like we can scarcely imagine. That there will be great abundance. This is the word of glory that God brings. But finally, there's the word of judgment in verses 19 through 21. That he ends this by reminding his own people what he's going to do to right wrongs. Now, there's this great contrast here between Egypt and Edom and his own people. Notice with me in verse 19. Egypt shall become a desolation and Edom a desolate wilderness for the violence done to the people of Judah because they have shed innocent blood in their land. But Judah shall be inhabited forever in Jerusalem to all generations. I will avenge their blood, blood I have not avenged, for the Lord dwells in Zion. So he's going to bring judgment on Egypt and Edom. Those are not the first nations we've seen listed in Joel by name. But even as we've seen before, Philistia and Tyre and Sidon and all these different places, what they're meant to be is representative of the enemies of God's people. And in this time and place, Edom was not really all that great to begin with as far as being pretty and being full of wonderful harvests and those sorts of things. But Egypt was. Egypt had the Nile. Egypt had some lush places, some green places. Remember in the story of Joseph that Egypt had been blessed enough to save really the world, the known world around them during that time of famine. But what God is saying here is there's going to be a great contrast, a great reversal here. That Judah will have abundance and her enemies will have desolation. It's not quite the same thing as far as we see it. But I'm reminded of, the t- of a few weeks ago when we went to the RYS convention and we got to Kentucky. And I remembered, oh, that's right, that's what green looks like. You kind of forget sometimes. And then we came back and I realized, that's right, I live in a desert now. And that picture has been in my mind all week as I read these things. Judah will have these wonderful blessings and this provision, this abundance. I almost think of Judah as, and this sounds strange, almost as Kentucky. While Egypt and Edom are Arizona this summer particularly. There's a great contrast here. There's a great difference between what God is doing for his enemies and what he is doing for his people. And perhaps this is something that we desperately need to hear. Because we recognize we all come from different walks of life. We all come from different experiences and we're experiencing different things week by week. But we recognize that there are many things in this world that are not right. We recognize that there are many injustices done. We recognize that many of our brothers and sisters, even if we ourselves have not experienced it, are experiencing tremendous persecution for their faith. And it's been this way since the beginning. Since Cain and Abel. And really there are two ways open before us. We can despair of it. We can say this is how it's always going to be. That there truly is no justice and there will be nothing to make this right. Or 
we can go to God's word. We can see that the last day is many things. As we've seen, even in the book of Joel, it is many things. But one of the things that it is, is God making everything right. God coming to rescue and redeem his people. God coming to make Judah abundantly green and lush. God coming to make Edom and Egypt desolate wildernesses. This judgment is actually a word of comfort for us as well. And this will happen forever. This will always be the case. If this is what happens to God's enemies, what happens to his people? Well, it says, Judah shall be inhabited forever and Jerusalem to all generations. Forever and all generations. Unending communion with our God. To all who are here this evening trusting in Christ, that's what we are promised. As great as this abundance is, as great as the wine and milk flowing in the hills and the mountains, as great as the ever-flowing waters and streams and the fountain coming from the house of the Lord, as great even as justice being served and all these different things happening, that the greatest blessing is dwelling with God forever. The greatest blessing is unending communion with our creator and our sustainer and our savior. That is what we are promised, that God, the Lord, who is our God, will be our God forever. At the beginning of Joel, the land is devastated by locusts. Judah, and particularly Zion and Jerusalem, are not places that you want to be, humanly speaking at least. Everything is dying and falling apart. Joel ends this prophecy with a promise. A promise that these things will not always be so. That we have a Zion, a Jerusalem to look forward to, to live in forever with him. That what had become a place of death and destruction will be the great refuge for God's people. Because God himself will be there with us. Because we will see our Savior face to face. Because the one in whom we trust, the one in whom we have faith, the one in whom his gospel we believe will be there right before us and around us, behind us, under us, above us. And this will be our fate forever. And how do we know these things? How do we have a real understanding that these things will happen and that these things will truly come to pass? Notice with me again, verse 21. I will avenge their blood, blood I have not avenged, for the Lord dwells in Zion. And if you're reading the ESV, you might note that little footnote one there at the very bottom. Or I will acquit their blood guilt that I have not acquitted. Now, perhaps you're worried we're going to get really deep into Hebrew and all these different things tonight, and we're not. But scholars have disagreed about this verse for quite some time. And there are many arguments on many different sides of what this actually means, of whether it means that God will pour out judgment on the heads of Edom and Egypt, or whether it means he will forgive the blood guilt, he will acquit the bloodshed by Judah. He will forgive their sins. Brothers and sisters, and for a variety of reasons, not least of all the context of how Joel is ending this letter, I think it's probably the last one, the one that's in the footnote. That the best way to translate these words that are sometimes unusual are that God will forgive the sins of his people. That we will be able to dwell with him forever in Jerusalem, and Jerusalem will not be defiled even by us because we will have not only been forgiven, but we will be made completely holy and righteous. That all these things that God has promised to do in the verses previous to this are almost as nothing compared to this. We know, of course, that blood guilt is dealt with at two different times in history and only two different times. Once at the cross 2,000 years ago 
and once in the future whenever it comes on the last day. That's really the contrast we've been reading about for quite some time, for quite a few chapters here. Either God judges you because you are outside of Christ, you are not trusting in Yahweh, or God is your refuge because you are found in him. That's how Joel ends his prophecy. That's the last words here. For the Lord dwells in Zion, and that is why these things are happening. So how do we know they will happen? Because Christ has earned the right to rule and to reign and to conquer. And because Christ has earned salvation for us, enabling us to enter into the greater Zion. But as Joel comes to the people of God and brings this message to them, that is ultimately what he's pointing ahead to. Showing them, yes, things are happening now that are terrible. Yes, there has been judgment upon the sins of God's people. But God will dwell with us forever in Zion. That God will be our God and we will be his people. And this is a prophecy of finality. And that's difficult for us to really wrap our minds around. Because we have an understanding that today might be good or today might be bad, but tomorrow will come anyway, and it might be completely different. Joel is here reminding us that the last day comes, and things are either going to be good for eternity or bad for eternity from then on. For all who are trusting in Christ, this talk about the end is something that brings us comfort and hope. For all who are believing in the gospel, do you realize that you are dwelling in Zion now in a very real sense? That this God who roars from Zion is roaring for you even now, whether you can see it and hear it or not. And you will dwell there with him for all eternity. As we end our series in Joel, perhaps it's good for you to turn to the book of Revelation, specifically Revelation chapter 22, as it brings out some of these themes that we find in the prophets of the Old Testament. Revelation 22, and starting in verse 1. We see these promises that are going to come to pass, these things that are certain and true for us, just as they were true for the people who were hearing Joel's prophecy for the first time. Revelation 22, starting in verse 1, says, Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, through the middle of the street of the city, also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. And night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. And he said to me, These words are trustworthy and true. And the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, has sent his angel to show his servants what must soon take place. And behold, I am coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. Almost to the very end of the entire Bible of God's revelation to us, we have these promises reiterated that we find at the end of Joel. If you're trusting in Christ, these are promises for you. If you're trusting in Christ, this is where you will be forever. If you're trusting in Christ, this is the God who will have communion with you, who will bring abundance to you, and who will most importantly give you of himself. This is what Joel is telling us. No matter the hard times, no matter the difficulties we face in this life, these promises are true and sure because the God who made them is true and sure. Let's pray.
Our Father in heaven, we thank you for the words of this prophecy of Joel. We thank you, Lord, for these three short chapters that for many ways just bring us great comfort and hope, even in the midst of the words of judgment that we read. We thank you, Lord, that we can know who you are through what you have done for us, what you are doing for us, and what you have promised to do for us in the future. We thank you, Lord, for Jesus Christ, for the gospel of salvation, for the fact that we can know that those who trust in him have these blessings coming to us and have these blessings in our possession even now. We ask, Lord, that you would comfort and strengthen us with this knowledge as we go about our weeks in our Christian lives. We pray these things in Christ's name by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen.